Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas-Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thanks for joining me today. We are talking about Matthew chapters 19 to 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. These chapters are very parallel, so we have the same events recounted in pretty much each of these, although there are a few differences, of course, in the versions that the synoptic authors give. In addition, Luke 18 has a couple of other stories that are worth mentioning. Again, my disclaimer, I don't cover all the cool stuff in these chapters, but I do want to say a little about some of the messages that stood out to me this time around. So let's talk about divorce. Here, Matthew 19 begins with this question from the Pharisees about whether or not it's lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. Now, let's back up a little bit and mention that the Pharisees and the scribes are always trying to trip him up. They want him to engender hostility from some of the different groups amongst the Jews. And there were two particular groups that had very distinct views on divorce. So one of the groups believed that you could only divorce a wife for adultery, and the other believed that you could even divorce a wife if you didn't like the meal she cooked or if you saw another woman that you liked better. So it was a very open, liberal idea about divorce and what might justify that. So they're hoping that if you know he answers one way, that the one group will really generate some hatred and hostility toward Christ. And if he answers the other way, then the other group will resent him. So Christ, as always, answers by repeating God's law. And he goes back and attests what Moses has said. So first he kind of gives a background about marriage and says that, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning, meaning God the Father, made them male and female, and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So he's establishing, again, the importance of marriage in God's plan. We have additional statements that make that clear in our proclamation on family that talk about how essential marriage is to God's plan, because it's all about eternal lives, meaning that procreation is an essential component of the plan of salvation, and that that is the highest level possible for which to qualify in this life. If we pursue our covenant path to its complete end, we will be able to be married forever, and that is at the highest level of the celestial kingdom. So then he goes on and says, and this is verse 6 of Matthew 19, Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And then they mention Moses to challenge him. And he said, Moses allowed for some bills of divorcement because, this is verse 8, of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, the intent of marriage is not that it be a trial run or that we just see if we're compatible with somebody. It is intended to be forever. That's the purpose of the plan, to to have this opportunity for some to reach this level and, and have eternal lives and perpetuate this process of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of spirits. 
that were first intelligence, then spirit children, then mortal children, and eventually can be resurrected beings. So then he repeats again in verse 9 that whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication and shall marry another committeth adultery and whoso marry her which is put away doth commit adultery. So he's going back to the original law that is given by Moses that marriage is not supposed to be discarded for reasons other than infidelity where one of the partners commits adultery. Now obviously this is the highest law. So when it comes, I mean, Moses made an adjustment because people were not always able to live the highest law, which we are not in this time either. So our current church leaders repeat this policy, which is that there are other reasons for divorce, and that does not affect somebody's full fellowship in the church unless there is a sin involved that would otherwise always call for a membership council. So let's talk about this for a minute. I think it's important that we try to understand and teach this to our children in clear ways, that the design of marriage is to stay married and hopefully to be sealed forever in eternity. Nevertheless, because we each have agency, people can make choices along the path of marriage that make it impossible for that marriage to be eternal. Whether or not it lasts in this life is a is a different question, although related There are times where people may choose to stay married because divorce is so painful and costly, even though they realize that they're not equally yoked with somebody who is seeking the kingdom of God at the highest level of the celestial kingdom. That said, when there is abuse or any destructive elements, that marriage may need to end. Let me say this in words that come from our prophets. I was very grateful for a speech that Elder Dallin H. Oaks gave in April of 2007 that was simply titled Divorce. And if you have any additional questions or whatever, or have experienced divorce or are thinking about it, I think this is a great speech to read. Very grateful for these inspired words. I'm going to read some of that speech and share it here. He begins by saying this is a sensitive subject because it evokes such strong emotions from persons it has touched in different ways. And let me pause to say that a few years ago in conference, we were told that there are more single adults that are members of the church now than married adults. Now, some of that is because of people who have never had the opportunity to marry at all, and those constitute some of those single adults. And then a growing number have been through a divorce. So you put them together, and now there are more single adults than married in the church. That's kind of a sobering reality. So let's go on with Elder Oaks here. Some see themselves or their loved ones as the victims of divorce. Others see themselves as its beneficiaries. Some see divorce as evidence of failure. Others consider it an essential escape hatch from marriage. In one way or another, divorce touches most families in the church. The concept that society has a strong interest in preserving marriages for the common good as well as the good of the couple and their children, has been replaced for many by the idea that marriage is only a private relationship between consenting adults, terminable at the will of either. Now, this is true, certainly, and has become even more extreme since 2007, when Elder Oaks gave this speech. Marriage and a lot of other behaviors are seen as just up to the whim of the adults that are involved, 
rather than recognizing that all these things have impacts on society as a whole. Because the development of children in stable situations is a huge benefit for society. And yet that has been kind of cast to the side when it comes to just like, well, adults have to be happy all the time. And I'm not saying that we should be miserable all the time either. So let me go on and we'll talk about that more. Later on, Elder Oak said, modern prophets have warned that looking upon marriage as a mere contract that may be entered into at pleasure and severed at the first difficulty is an evil meriting severe condemnation, especially when children are made to suffer. That's certainly true. If we treat it that lightly and we think that this is, you know, I can just try marriage out, but if it gets hard, I'm going to end the marriage, particularly when there are children, is a pretty selfish and evil act. Later, Elder Oaks continues, there are many good church members who have been divorced. I speak first to them. We know that many of you are innocent victims, members whose former spouses persistently betrayed sacred covenants or abandoned or refused to perform marriage responsibilities for an extended period. Members who have experienced such abuse have firsthand knowledge of circumstances worse than divorce. When a marriage is dead and beyond hope of resuscitation, it is needful to have a means to end it. Then he gives some examples from the Philippines where he served for quite a while on assignment from the church where divorce is not available in that culture, or at least wasn't back in in the time that he was speaking. I don't know if it is now. And he talked about how that just stops people's progressions if they're not able to move forward with their lives because they are married to somebody who has completely abandoned them or who is, you know, destructive or abusive. Anyway, I really appreciate this statement by then Elder Oaks that both of these sentences I think are very important. Members who have experienced such abuse have firsthand knowledge of circumstances worse than divorce. I think that's a very important statement. And the next one also, when a marriage is dead and beyond hope of resuscitation, it is needful to have a means to end it. Later in the speech, Elder Oaks adds this, all who have been through divorce know the pain and need the healing power and hope that comes from the atonement. That healing power and that hope are there for them and also for their children. Let me make a pitch that we be patient in receiving that healing power. There are a lot of complications that come after divorce. As many of you will know, or maybe all of us have observed, that where children are involved, divorce is a relative term, meaning that the association has to go on in order to co-parent or handle visitation or their financial obligations that can go either way. And all of those things require interaction between the divorced husband and wife. And this is hard stuff. In fact, I often have told people that divorce is not really a solution as much as it is a different set of problems. Now, they may be better problems than the ones that are being experienced in an abusive or destructive marriage. Sometimes they're not better problems, and that's why some people may choose to remain in an imperfect marriage. Well, every marriage is imperfect, let's be clear. But in a difficult marriage, they may choose to remain because the alternative is more costly. And they decide that as long as there is not a huge level of destruction going on, I can hang in there so that I don't have to deal with the fallout of divorce or my children don't have to deal with it. 
Again, that's not always possible or advisable, but it's a very personal decision and we don't have the right to make a judgment on somebody else as to whether or not they're doing it right. It's their life and we don't have to deal with the consequences. And that's something I tell clients all the time. It doesn't mean I may not have an opinion about what the status of their marriage is or what might be a good path moving forward, but I always emphasize that And I hope all of us feel this way, that it is not our decision to make. No matter how much of an opinion we have, it is not our decision to make because we don't have to live with the consequences. The person who is in that situation and makes that decision is the one who will deal with the consequences and we should be supportive of that because they need support and deserve that support. I love this part too. Elder Oak said, now I speak to married members, especially to any who may be considering divorce. I strongly urge you and those who advise you to face up to the reality that for most marriage problems, the remedy is not divorce, but repentance. That is such an important statement. I strongly urge you and those who advise you to face up to the reality that for most marriage problems, the remedy is not divorce, but repentance. Every marriage could be saved if people repent of their faults and sins and mistakes and move forward with a determination to not repeat the the injurious behaviors, the, the sins, the problems, the selfishness, whatever it is that has led to the the destructive parts of that marriage. If we will each repent when necessary and make restitution which we'll talk about more on another podcast. But anyway, if we can do that, every marriage could be a good marriage. Elder Oaks again, often the cause is not incompatibility, but selfishness. The first step is not separation, but reformation. Let's reform our lives. Later, Elder Oaks says, Latter-day Saint spouses should do all within their power to preserve their marriages. They should follow the Marriage Enrichment Council of the First Presidency's message in the April 2007 ensign in Liahona. To avoid so-called incompatibility, he's quoting from that article, they should be best friends, kind and considerate, sensitive to each other's needs, always seeking to make each other happy. That's a great summary statement. Let's just go back again. To avoid so-called incompatibility... They should be best friends, kind and considerate. That's huge. Those words are so important. Kind and considerate, sensitive to each other's needs, always seeking to make each other happy. They should be partners in family finances. That is enormous as well. Each one of these things is so important. They should be partners in family finances, working together to regulate their desires for temporal things. In other words, the goal is not to accumulate as much stuff as you can as a couple. It is to regulate our temporal desires so that we can live within our means and be good stewards over the things that we receive. That doesn't mean that, again, we've said this a million times, it's not that money is evil. It's the love of money and the pursuit of those things at the expense of the kingdom of God that is the problem. And then just a couple of last statements from Elder Oaks that I'm going to quote today. But again, I encourage you to go to the speech. 
from April 2007 named Divorce by Elder Oaks, if you're interested. The whole speech is wonderful. The best way to avoid divorce, says Elder Oaks, from an unfaithful, abusive, or unsupportive spouse is to avoid marriage to such a person. If you wish to marry well, inquire well. Those are wise words. Now, that said, there are people who can hold their breath during a courtship, and they can portray themselves or represent themselves in ways that are not really who they are, that are not completely honest. That certainly can happen. We can be deceived. But it is less likely if we inquire well and if we take time. They certainly see that the world is descending as prophesied into a more telestial space. And because of that, I think it's harder than ever to be sure of what people are like before we marry. But it's not impossible to get a pretty good idea if we take time and inquire well, as Elder Oak says. We need to spend a lot of time and in a lot of different circumstances and settings. We need to understand how they interact with other people. And over a long period of time, do they have long-term high-quality friends? Or do they seem to kind of lose their friends as they go along through life? Because maybe they don't admit this, but they're burning bridges in their relationships because they end up offending or disappointing or betraying people or behaving in other ways that ruin the relationship. What do their roommates think of them? What does their family think of them? I mean, all of these things are important. Now, there are a lot of different variables involved. They could have lousy roommates, but they probably haven't always had lousy roommates or lousy friends. So, you know, check into things. And the more we check in, the more we find that it is hard for people to hold their breath forever. So we can protect ourselves from a lot of trouble in marriage by being cautious about marriage selection. That said... People can also change or people can go through reversals in life or disappointments or failures that can sour them. And they may have started out faithful and believing and they might lose their testimony or leave the church. We've talked about that a little bit in the past. They may become attached to some really inappropriate behavior or addiction that can destroy the marriage. So anyway, there is no complete failsafe in this life. It is something that we learn through experience. So this is not to blame ourselves if we married someone who did not stay the course or didn't want to stay the course or if we had to leave because of their choices. That is that is not our blame if we were trying to do the right things. I will say that people who maybe didn't make the very most careful selection do tend to have a little bit more regret because they feel like, well, if I'd been paying attention, it might have been possible for me to avoid this. But that said, if there are children involved, those children are precious gifts. So it doesn't help to go back and belabor those choices. What helps now is to move forward in faith and to find how the Lord wants to help us move forward with our children in a covenant path. The last beautiful statement that President Oaks makes is from personal experience, I testify to the sweetness of the marriage and family life that the family proclamation describes as founded upon a husband and wife's solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children and upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. I mean, he closes with his testimony, but this is basically his last statement on his topic. And I love that, that he can testify to the sweetness of the marriage and family life 
that the family proclamation describes as founded upon a husband and wife's solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children and upon the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our aim. I hope that each of us makes a commitment to do that and that we invite our spouses to join us in that path. We cannot force people, but we can invite, we can try to persuade, we can try to marry someone like that in the first place. Now, on another speech given by one of our prophets, President Faust, back in April of 1993, so this was 14 years prior to Elder Oak's speech on divorce, it was a speech called Father Come Home, and I love this statement and have quoted it often in client settings and other settings, that President Faust, I mean, he kind of describes how he has counseled with many people about marriage and divorce and how he didn't know if he was fully qualified to establish or to try to state what just cause for divorce might be. But then he does give us his opinion. So let me read that sentence, which I value highly. He said, in my opinion, just cause for divorce should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship, which is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. I'm going to read that again. In my opinion, said President Faust, just cause for divorce should be nothing less serious than a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship, which is destructive of a person's dignity as a human being. Another way that we might put that in reference to the three realms model that I've talked about, where we talk about telestial law and telestial lifestyles as opposed to terrestrial law and lifestyles, and as contrasted with celestial law and lifestyles. I believe that it would be fair to equate President Faust's statement here with telestial behavior, persistent telestial behavior, not just, you know, dipping their toes in, but like really not being willing to come out of the telestial realm. Remember that the telestial law is appetite satisfaction and immediate gratification. That's the rule of the natural man. The natural man is unharnessed, kind of drives the bus, so to speak, of that person's life, and the results are pain, violence, and destruction. So that pain, violence, and destruction sometimes doesn't come right away to the person who's sinning because God grants a space unto us to allow us to repent if we choose. But it actually is most likely to be felt first by the people who live close to the natural man or to the person living telestial law. So a spouse and children can be the ones to first experience the pain, violence, and destruction that comes when people are living more telestially. They're letting their natural man run the show and they don't repent even when asked to stop or change or, you know, limit their injurious behavior. And when that is the case, I think that's what President Faust is talking about, that that would be prolonged if it persists without any efforts to be abated. And it's apparently irredeemable because we have done everything we know to invite, entice, persuade the other person to get help or address these issues or work with us toward a better life, toward a more terrestrial law, at least. Terrestrial marriages are great. They're great because both parties harness the natural man. So they're not acting in selfishness. And remember, President Kimball said so long ago that, in his opinion, that 
the reason for marriages to fail or to lead to divorce were always based in selfishness on either one person's part or both. So when we're terrestrial, if we're at least terrestrial, we're not selfish anymore. We have harnessed the natural man and its appetites with self-control and delayed gratification. And we do think about other people and we follow the rules. So we are willing to correct our mistakes, to apologize for the things that we do that are hurtful and to not do them again, to learn to get better so that we are not destructive of other people. So living with a terrestrial person is marvelous and can then, if we desire more, can be the foundation of celestial marriage, which again, for hopefully all of us is the ultimate goal. Now you can qualify for celestial marriage, even if your partner doesn't. And you don't have to be divorced in this life unless it's a prolonged and apparently irredeemable relationship, which is destructive of your human dignity. But you may have a partner who doesn't really want to go the whole distance to make that marriage celestial, but is, you know, good enough to live with. There's no reason to go through divorce in this life. During the millennium, the details will be worked out. We know that covenants made in the temple are conditional until sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Check out section 132 that talks about that in the first several verses of that section, that covenants that are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise are of no efficacy when men are dead. So we could be sealed in the temple, but if we don't both keep our covenants, then that marriage is not going to be an eternal marriage. But if one of those people did keep their covenants and sought the kingdom of God by hungering and thirsting after righteousness and continuing past terrestrial law to celestial law, which is becoming like Jesus Christ through the sanctifying power of the Holy Ghost and truly having Christ-like being, not just behavior, then that person will be able to find a partner during the millennium. And it will be their choice, not by assignment. They will fall in love, the whole package and have an assurance of that highest level of the celestial kingdom. So there are a lot of ideas around this, and some people feel like if their partner doesn't desire it, then they chose the wrong person and they should leave the marriage immediately, or that they just are going to lose out. And that's not true. That's not true. But we do understand, and I'm so grateful for these wonderful statements by now President Oaks and then President Faust, that can help us see that God does not want us to be victimized over this in a chronic way. You know, we might be hurt. No marriage is perfect. People do things that are hurtful. But if we have a partner who is willing to correct that and we can work together to get ourselves in a better place, wonderful things can happen for us and our children and a lot of pain can be avoided. When it cannot be avoided, We can trust in the healing powers of the atonement, which may take a while, and we may not see all the fruit of that in this life. Remember, we've talked about this, how Boyd K. Packer gave that wonderful speech called The Play and the Plan, where he says that many of the problems of this mortal estate will be resolved in the third act, which is the spirit world slash millennium. And that at the end of the second act of a three-act play, which represents death or the end of this mortal existence, that often the plot just thickens. That's my language, not his, but it's definitely his idea. And he's saying to try to judge how it all turns out by the end of our mortal existence is a limited view and a serious misunderstanding. God will resolve so much during the millennial time. It's going to be amazing, all the healing and the restoration that happens during that time, we can trust that and not not let our impatience creep up because we want it now. 
Okay, spent a long time on that, and I'm not even done talking about marriage in this podcast because toward the end, I'm going to share a few ideas that are more on the positive side about how some things that we can do to make our marriages better if we're interested in doing that. But let's first talk about the rich young ruler. You know this story. He comes and says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? This is spoken of in all three of these synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all talk about this rich young ruler. There is a nice detail in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, that is not included in the other author's versions that Jesus, well, let me just read the words, then Jesus beholding him, loved him. I think that's so tender. Jesus knew that this man was too attached to his belongings. Of course, he understood that from the beginning. But he could see that he wanted to be good in many ways. He may not have been prepared or willing to make that final sacrifice. And I think it's important for us to realize, again, we've talked about this so much, that we aren't even supposed to covet our own possessions. This was told to Martin Harris in the Doctrine and Covenants, right? Don't covet your own property. That's so important to God because it's not ours. It's his. We are just temporal stewards over those things, the gifts or the blessings we have. And some people say, well, I worked darn hard for that. Yeah. And where do you think you got that strength? Where did your good ideas come from? You think that just happened because your own arm hath done that? That's the arm of flesh, brothers and sisters. God is the giver of all good gifts, including our temporal blessings. Now, sometimes we don't receive those blessings because God has another route for us and a test involved, like Joseph Smith, who never really was very successful temporally, but had another mission to accomplish. So we shouldn't measure the love of God by whether or not we have a lot of stuff. But we should realize that whether we have a lot or a little, God does not want us to be attached to stuff. He wants us to recognize it's a stewardship and it should be used in accordance with his will for us. So he tells this rich young ruler to give all that he has to the poor and come and follow Christ. And we hear the sad ending that this man went away sorrowing for he had many possessions. So he doesn't jump that last hurdle, which is to not attach himself to his stuff. It's really a good thing for us to examine periodically and see, am I too attached to my possessions, to my lifestyle, to the things that I've been blessed with, or am I able to let those things go for the kingdom of God? And then, of course, there's this famous statement made about how a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of God, you know, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And of course, we probably heard about how, you know, in the city gates, there was a small passageway that was called the needle, and that a camel and his traveler who came to the city gates after dark when the gates were closed, could get into the city by the camel kind of kneeling and crawling through that little narrower or smaller passage. Now, Obviously, that's not an easy thing for a camel to do, but, you know, they could do it. But some other people have said, no, that's just fiction, that that Christ actually did mean a camel and the eye of a sewing needle. So I don't, I can't speak with authority on which was being referenced here. But clearly the message is that people who are attached to their belongings are going to have a hard time to get into heaven because they are not ours. They are God's. We are just stewards. We must not covet and not even covet our own properties Really an important message, always a good review. We're in a world 
in which we experience a lot of abundance and we can get pretty attached to that abundance. But we must not if we want to be members of Christ's kingdom and be instruments in his hand. And then, you know, he uses this phrase several times in the scriptures, but the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that's another important idea. I'm quoting this one from verse 30 in Matthew 19. And then as kind of an illustration of that, because it's sort of a continuation of the idea in some respects, Matthew 20 gives us the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. This is another really important message that Christ wants to teach his apostles before his crucifixion. He he talks about, you know, all the laborers that are brought into the vineyard to work for the owner and that each one, even though it's at at the beginning of the day, agreed to labor for a penny a day. And then, you know, as the hours progress in the day, the third hour, he sees people who are not working and he gives them the same deal. Go and work in the vineyard and I'll give you what's right. And then the sixth and the ninth hour, he does it again. And the 11th hour, even the 11th hour, he sees people and he says, why are you standing here idle? Come and work. And they say, no man have hired us. So he says, okay, go into the vineyard also. This is chapter 20, verse 7 of Matthew. And then when the day is over, he tells the steward, call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. Interesting that he pays the last ones first. And that way the first can see what the last ones are paid. So there's a purpose to that order. Otherwise, he would have paid the first ones and they could have gone on their merry way and never seen that the ones brought in at the 11th hour or the 6th or the 9th or the 3rd would get the same pay that they got when they began the day working. And of course, every man gets his penny and then the first kind of come having observed that everybody gets the same wage and they're saying, well, shouldn't we have more? Because those last guys just worked one hour and we've been here all day and, you know, dealt with the, the heat of the day. And his answer in Matthew 20, verse 13, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil, because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen." This is such an important idea. It seems to go against the grain of our human natural man nature, right? <laughs> because we think, hey, somebody who works longer should get more. And yet, think about what he's really discussing here. He's talking about all that he hath. That is the covenant arrangement that we have with God, is that if we enter this covenant path and persist on the path and complete the path through the atonement of Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through that atoning sacrifice, that we will have all that the Father hath. We will be equal in our portions because we'll all have everything. And it is God's to dispose of. And he offers with such great generosity that we can have even the same as the Savior Jesus Christ, meaning that we become co-heirs with Christ as the scriptures describe it. That's, again, like, what are we complaining about? Because somebody came into the kingdom later? Because I was fortunate enough to be a member of the church from my birth? And others joined the church later in their lives, some even at the 11th hour. But if their hearts and minds were set upon the Lord, and they brought forth the fruits of repentance and continued to the best of their ability 
in this life. Okay, let me change that. My husband doesn't like that phrase, the best of our ability. He says we should be diligent. And he's right, because best is kind of a hard to define word. But to be diligent and continue diligently, that's what God asks of us. That's the word he uses in scripture is that we pursue these covenants diligently. So we keep coming. And if we keep coming, we will have all that he has. So we're going to sit and complain. There are no scarce commodities in the kingdom of God. Just because the Lord gives me all that he has doesn't mean that he still doesn't have all remaining to give to another person who has followed that covenant path. So if I complete my path and we all complete our paths, we all get the same reward. Why would we bellyache about that? It is the Father's generous plan. And someone else's success does not affect me, except if I'm bitter and selfish. And I don't have to be. I can celebrate that God is so generous. that. And then the other part of this, let me just add, because sometimes I forget to add this. Am I discounting the blessings that come to me because I'm a member of the church? What an incredible gift it is to come early into the vineyard because we have the commandments of God, which are advanced information of what behaviors can bring blessings into our lives and which behaviors can bring troubles and suffering into our lives. God tells us, where the hot stoves and the cliff edges are. And we can avoid those by being members of the church early in our lives if we are willing to be obedient and diligent. So am I going to complain about that? (laughs) Am I really going to say, oh, it's too bad I couldn't eat, drink, and be merry until the 11th hour? I mean, that's not much of, of a disciple's thinking there, is it? Let's be careful about this. And this is reminding me of something we talked about in the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. This is from Malachi 3. Maybe you remember that we spoke about this. Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Meaning like, what good did it do us to be obedient? What good did it do us to keep your ordinance, your covenants, and to to follow the commandments? Are we really going there? Are we saying that that was a curse rather than an enormous blessing? And then in verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. They that tempt God are even delivered. In other words, are we really like our kids with our nose pressed against the candy store window looking at people who don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're envying them? Like, wow, time to straighten up our thinking because that is such foolishness. We are definitely not really converted to God's way if we're thinking we're missing out on the fun of the wicked or the ones who haven't yet come into the kingdom. They may not be wicked, in this case, where we're talking about the vineyard, you know, the 11th hour vineyard workers, what did they say when the Lord said, why do you stand here idle? They said, well, no man has hired us. So this isn't just about people who were wicked. It's about people who didn't have an understanding of what was available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they come later to that knowledge or they are exposed to it or find the missionaries or find the church later. Is that the life we envy? Or are we grateful that we came when we came into the vineyard, whenever it was, whether it was the first hour or the third or the sixth or the ninth or the 11th? 
Can we just be grateful that we have come into the kingdom and recognize the goodness of God who gives all the laborers the same amazing reward? We also have in these chapters a clear description. Each of these synoptic authors tells us this same brief experience where as they are returning to Judea, the Savior gives a very clear description of his betrayal with some additional information. As far as we know, this is the first time that he mentioned that he would be betrayed, that he would be scourged and crucified before the resurrection. So he explains this to his apostles with some detail. Now we know that the last time, or at least one of the times that Christ has said this to his apostles, Peter jumps in and says, far be it from thee, Lord. And Christ says, get thee behind me, Satan, because this is why he came. So it's important that he tell them, this is, this is the purpose of my coming to earth so that I can atone for all mankind and break the bands of death for everyone and break the bands of sin for those that will repent. So he's very clear about this. As far as we know, the apostles do not protest this time, but hear him. Even then, we know that they were not prepared for what happened completely. You can only imagine how hard it would have been to conceive of what Christ was really telling them. They certainly didn't want it to happen. They were his followers. They loved him. But he he does teach them these things in plainness, increasing plainness as his ministry continues. And then we have a story in these chapters also of the mother of James and John, who were the sons of Thunder and the sons of Zebedee. And she comes and asks, you know, can they sit on one on your right hand and one on your left when you entered your kingdom? And Christ, you know, kind of calls her out and says, you don't know what you ask. First of all, this is not mine to give. And this is important because, I mean, how sad. Here we have this amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the priesthood of God on the earth. We have temples. We have saving ordinances, beginning with baptism and then continuing into the temple, and of course the covenant of priesthood for the men, and continuing into the temple to make covenants of exaltation if we will complete that path in diligence. And yet there's some jockeying for position. <laughs> it's a little bit like those laborers in the vineyard. You know, they have to compare, they have to contrast with the others around them instead of just like, isn't this a wonderful, generous plan that I can choose God and God will choose me through his son, Jesus Christ? And it reminded me of this verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 64, verse 8. Maybe you remember this, where Christ reveals to Joseph Smith that my disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And for this evil, they were afflicted and sorely chastened. So he's also referencing sort of the contention and the jockeying of his apostles and disciples in the the days of his ministry. Many of us are watching that wonderful show, The Chosen. I enjoy it tremendously, and I hope you do as well. But you see it there, and I think that that it's nicely depicted. Again, obviously, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but I think that the impression that they're trying to give us of that sort of comparison or irritation with one another or, you know, their, their little competitions and so on, I think that's pretty well illustrated in that series. And it reminds me of this, that we really need to put these things away from us. It has been said that comparison is the thief of joy. So why do we go there? 
Why do we have to look at our position relative to other people's positions? We all start out in different places. Some of us are are born in one country, some in another. Some are born into circumstances of freedom and others less freedom or not freedom. Some of us are born into the church and others not. Some come into the church early, some later. There are so many differences between us. Some marry, some do not. Some stay married, some divorce. Some have children. Some, I mean, we could compare endlessly. And then there's all the comparison about how much we acquire of worldly goods in this world. And so many people get caught in this kind of comparison and desiring, you know, a certain status or a certain position in the lineup. Not God's way. Not God's way. It leads to a contentious heart. Even if we're not fighting, but we are inside ourselves comparing. There's contention there. There's pride. Those things should be done away. And we need to not compare. And then when we do have little conflicts, we need to forgive readily. Which is the next verse there in section 64. Wherefore I say unto you that ye ought to forgive one another. For he that forgiveth not his brother, his trespasses standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. And then, of course, this very well-known verse, verse 10 of section 64, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. And ye ought to say in your hearts, let God judge between me and thee and reward thee according to thy deeds. In other words, turn it over. Turn it over. Stop comparing. Stop contesting. Stop having these little arguments that remain or grudges that we hold. Let the Lord judge between us and everyone else. And we know that he will do it with perfect justice and perfect mercy. It's a great message to take away from that series, The Chosen, because that is clearly something that they they decided to depict. And let us learn that lesson now. Then we have in Luke 18 a couple of stories that are not included in the other gospel authors' versions of this time. One is the parable of the unjust steward and the widow's constant petition. And just briefly, you know, this judge is not a good guy, and he's not concerned with justice, and he's not concerned with people, and he doesn't care about God. And it says that quite clearly here in Luke 18. But He is bothered by the widow who constantly comes asking for the same petition to be granted. And he says, finally, he's like, okay, I'm wearied of all these petitions. And he grants her her petition. And the Lord is saying, like, you don't think that God will grant your petition? And then he even mentions specifically that shall not God avenge his own elect? And we know that the blood of the righteous will cry from the earth for a just judgment and Everyone will be recompensed in an accountable way according to their choices in this life. And God will do it just right. So anyway, interesting parable there to say that like we should continue to petition the Lord for the things that we need. Now, hopefully not in an obsessive way. We've talked about this before, that the Lord knoweth beforehand the things which we need. Therefore, our prayers can be quite simple and we don't have to worry about naming every blessing that we seek or every relief that we need, but we can stay in touch with our Heavenly Father through prayer. And yes, some prayers should be longer, and some should pour out our whole hearts to the Lord, and hopefully we have a prayer in our heart always, or learn to do that as we go through our daily walk, that we are thinking constantly of what the Lord would have us do, what would Jesus do himself, and seeking that kind of guidance and inspiration and prompting and following it. And that can become, you know, this wonderful 
constant petition to the Lord. That is not an OCD petition, but just an earnest desire for the Lord's blessings on our behalf, the ones that he has offered to us and just showing our willingness to receive it. Finally, there is this story of the Pharisee and the publican who both go to pray. And of course, the Pharisee is giving a pretty proud and prideful prayer where he's like, boy, I'm sure glad I'm me (laughs) because I'm pretty cool. You know, I'm better than my neighbors. I'm a really good person. And so, wow, thanks for, for letting me be this great. And the publican, in a, in a very humble way, is saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And which of those enters easier into the kingdom? It's the publican, of course. Now, publicans weren't all sinners, although they were sometimes people who cheated the taxpayers. So they were not liked. Obviously, they were working for Rome. That was already a pretty shameful thing for a Jew to do. And then they're going to collect taxes for Rome from their fellow Jews, So they were pretty well hated. And we know this about Matthew, who was a tax collector and calls himself a sinful man. But God knows that his heart is good and he calls him to be one of his apostles. So it's certainly not that they were all evil, but it was just kind of a hated position. The point here again is that we need to look at ourselves and eliminate pride and be humble. Each one of us approaching the Lord, knowing that we fall far short of the glory of God. We ourselves can never enter his presence without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the wonderful grace that accompanies that gift. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about marriage because I want to go back to that idea that Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, what is the intent of marriage? It is that we become better. I've said this you know, ever since I started doing counseling, and maybe even before, because I was certainly aware of this principle, that marriage is one of the best refiner's fire on the planet. (laughs) One of the very best of the refiner's fires that is available to refine us. Now, people who are not married will have opportunities to be refined. But let's face it, if we're married, this is a great opportunity to take care of problems that are in us, imperfections, selfishness, irritability, you know, whatever it is that, you know, if we have an over-desire for control or we have a bad temper or whatever it is, marriage and family can give us wonderful opportunities to address those issues in the close juxtaposition of family life. So all my little imperfections and all my spouse's imperfections in the close juxtaposition of family life rub up against each other, create friction, and it can either, you know, start a conflagration and burn us into ash Or it can help us to rub those tough parts off and to get rid of them and to let ourselves be refined and become a better version of ourselves as we continue through our marriages. Now, this is a tough gig, brothers and sisters. Marriage is definitely in jeopardy, has been for a long time, but it increases in its troubles and in its challenges as people become more and more selfish and let themselves go into telestial lifestyles and do not repent. And that can, of course, lead to the end of a marriage, but it also can just lead to a great deal of unhappiness. Now let's talk about something positive. And I'm taking most of this from John Gottman, who just does nice summaries. John Gottman is a well-known marriage researcher from the University of Washington, very well-respected and has a lot of good materials. I like a lot of John Gottman's stuff. I can't say I'm familiar with all of it, but what I have read, I have always appreciated. 
And I'm very impressed by something that John Gottman did that we'll talk about here in a moment. So I'll point that out when we get to that number. But he lists seven things that can help us in our marriages and to ultimately have a successful relationship in marriage. The first thing he says is seek help early. And I appreciate that a great deal. He says too many people persist in unhappiness for a long time in their marriage. And the love can be really worn down and sometimes even eroded to the point where it's hard to recapture it. Not impossible if we do the right things, but that is a very difficult thing to come back from. So he's saying, don't wait many years. So many people wait and they just try to struggle through or ignore or whatever, but get help. It doesn't have to be professional help, although if that is called for, seek professional help. Bishops can help with that if we don't have the funds I know they can't help everybody. It depends on the ward. So I'm not trying to obligate bishops to do this. I am saying that sometimes there is help available in the church. And certainly our priesthood leaders can make themselves available to counsel with us. They may not be professional or know all the ways to help us. But if they can help us find what our weaknesses and sins are, and that could be our approach, knowing, as we just read from Elder Oaks, then Elder Oaks, that the answer to most problems in marriage is not divorce, but repentance. And if we go in and ask the bishop that plainly, help us find out where we are being selfish or sinful or over-controlling or not fair with money or whatever it is, or we have an addiction or something more serious like that or have committed adultery. Anyway, whatever those things are, the bishop can help us to identify them and repent if we phrase those questions well. Then, and if we're honest, and of course, we have to have an honest heart in this. I am going to say that if our partner will not seek help and will not agree to seek help together, you can seek help on your own. You don't have to go as a married couple. Marriage counseling can be with one married partner. I mean, it's different, obviously, than if we're working with a couple. And we love being able to work with couples because then we we can get both perspectives and we can get a more clear understanding of how we can help. Nevertheless, if you are suffering in marriage, there is a lot that can happen if you get help and you can address the things that are on your side, including becoming a non-victim Christian, which I've talked about before, so that you're not just victimized in the marriage. And again, that the love is destroyed over time. Number two, edit yourself. Boy, I like this one. He says that the most successful couples are kind to each other. There's a shocker, right? The most successful couples are kind to each other. So we edit ourselves. I remember one young man that came in with his wife for counseling, and she pushed it because she was very unhappy, and they had not been married very long. And this young married man said very nasty things to his wife. He was very critical, very hurtful, very negative and mean in the way he spoke to her. And then his defense quote unquote defense was, well, I'm just telling her the honest truth. I'm just saying what I feel. I need to be completely honest. I need to tell the truth. That's ridiculous. And what an abuse of the principle of honesty. Being honest in our marriages does not require complete disclosure of every negative thought that passes our mind or that comes up. Like, really? We need to say every rude thing. I remember this wonderful story about Neil Maxwell, one of my, you know, beloved former apostles who, who in a speech that I can't remember and haven't looked up said, he was telling the story on himself that he was dealing with one of the assistants or the admins or something in the church office building. And he became kind of impatient about something that hadn't been done correctly or wasn't done yet, something along those lines. And he said that he was unkind 
And as they walked away, he was with one of his brethren from the 12. And as he walked away, the other brother said to him, you know, you could have gone all day without saying that. Or maybe he said you could have gone all year without saying that. I don't remember the time frame. And maybe it was in one of his books. I'm sorry, I don't remember where this comes from, but I remember the story and I love it. Because it's true. There are some things that we could go our whole lifetimes and never say and be better for it. And the marriage would be better for it. Our relationship with our children would be better for it. Our relationship with everybody would be better if we restrain from saying everything that comes to our minds, every negative or selfish or hurtful thought. Let's edit ourselves. I saw this in another presentation somewhere that survey after survey show that the number one character trait that women want in marriage is kindness. Now, obviously, men benefit from kindness as well. So that needs to go both ways, no question. But it is so important to women. Men, check yourself. And women, check yourself as well. Any of us can become vicious in the things that we say, and we must not. As Christ keeps saying, it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him. It's that which comes out. Same being true of women, of course. Number three, soften your startup. That's another nicely phrased bit of advice. Meaning that if we have to talk about a subject that is going to be a little bit conflicted because we have different opinions on it or we have very strong feelings on opposite sides of this particular subject, we don't have to start in aggressively. We're going to be much better off and our relationship will do much better if we soften our startup and we approach it with some diplomacy. I'm not talking about being manipulative or dishonest in any way, shape, or form. I'm saying we can be diplomatic. We can be kind. We can be gentle about the way we bring up a difference of opinion. And we can express our desire to understand our spouse and to find a solution that works for both of us. Soften your startup. Number four, accept influence from your partner. Wow, this is a great one too. Gottman says a relationship succeeds to the extent that the husband can accept influence from his wife. Now, isn't that interesting? This is coming from a male marriage researcher, and he says a relationship succeeds. This is a strong statement. A relationship succeeds to the extent that the husband can accept influence from his wife. That's a powerful statement. He goes on and says a husband's ability to be influenced by his wife rather than vice versa, is crucial because research shows that women are already well-practiced at accepting influence from men. Now, I've been talking to my husband about this lately because it's been on my mind a lot. And it started the conversation with one of my sons, Harper, in fact, and then it kind of grew into just continued discussions with Chris that I was saying that women have such an orientation toward relationship preservation that they are willing to make sacrifices pretty readily or accommodations pretty readily or to change their mind fairly readily because they want to preserve the relationship. Now, I'm not saying men don't care about the relationship. Please don't misunderstand me. But we are different. And we have different ways of approaching things. And that's one of the divine divisions of labor that God has given. And it also is part of this refiner's fire that we have to learn to live with those differences and modify them as needed not eliminate them because the differences are divine, but some of them can become problematic and those should be modified. So here's one of them. Women are more likely, research apparently shows this again and again, that women are more likely than men to accept influence from their partners. 
So a man needs to ramp up his desire and willingness to be influenced by his wife. And that is crucial for relationship success. Think about that, brothers. Let's think about this. Let's discuss it with our wives and yield to this great counsel. Gottman continues, a true partnership only occurs when the husband can do the same thing, meaning accept influence from his wife. Number five, have high standards. Oh, I love this. The most successful couples are those who, even as newlyweds, refused to accept hurtful behavior from one another. In other words, they had good boundaries. I talk about this all the time. I have a presentation that I gave for my daughter-in-law's Relief Society in Midway recently. I posted that on Patreon and I talk about boundaries. So if you want a more full explanation of boundaries, I mean, there's more to say about it than I had a chance to say there, but I do give the basic model of healthy boundaries as taught by God in scripture. And I give that presentation in that video that my daughter-in-law recorded, bless her, on her phone so that I could post it on Patreon. And it is on Patreon now. That's already posted. So if you're interested, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash choosing glory. And for access to the extra content, sign up at level two or three, and that will give you access to that video. Okay, so Having those high standards is talking about having healthy boundaries in our marriages so that we do not become chronically victimized by hurtful behavior. Gottman continues, low levels of tolerance for bad behavior in the beginning of a relationship equals a happier couple down the road. Number six, learn to repair and exit the argument. How to exit an argument or how to repair the situation before an argument gets completely out of control is important. So we want to to learn how to bring things to a calmer place when things start to get heated or escalated. So Gottman gives some examples of repair skills or mechanisms like using humor, offering a caring remark, and this is not to be later. It's like in the midst of the disagreement that's starting to get elevated to, you know, Turn it to something humorous, not hurtful, not mocking, not sarcastic. Those are not good humor, but something that both of you can kind of chuckle at so that you can take a breather for a second from the tension. Offering a caring remarks, same thing. It's got to be sincere and in the middle of this, like maybe something like, I understand that this is hard for you, or I know that this is a sensitive subject. I mean, being caring about it and empathizing with the other. Remember that defensiveness is the death of empathy. I know I've said this before, but it's a good reminder. Defensiveness is the death of empathy. So if we want to help to de-escalate situations, to repair or exit arguments, offering a kind, caring, understanding remark can make a big difference. Making it clear you're on common ground. And this is really wonderfully important that we not be like combatants on the opposite sides of the table, you know, trying to carve up Germany. No, we need to be on the same side of the table against the problem. And the problem in this case is that we completely disagree, but that needs to be our shared problem. And we are both addressing that disagreement in a way to find common ground or to find some negotiated solution that each of us can live with and feel that represents a portion of something that we need so that our partner cared enough about us to be willing to make compromises or that negotiated solution, as I said. So we want to tackle these problems together. Backing down 
Wow, this is so important. (laughs) This is so important. Sometimes we just need to retreat from our position and just stop being so intense and just give it a rest. Like, wait, let's just, let's just, I'm so sorry. I'm getting too excited. I'm getting too angry or upset. And I don't want to do that. Backing down. Yielding to win. Sometimes we just hang on to it like a dog with a bone and we just do damage as we continue. We need to take breaks. We need to back down. And in general, offering signs of appreciation for your partner and for their feelings along the way. So be generous with those statements of appreciation for your partner's thoughts or ideas or their willingness to work with you or to talk about such a sensitive subject, all that kind of stuff. And if an argument gets too escalated, too heated, take a 20-minute break minimum. You might need to go longer than that. I actually disagree with that advice that says never go to bed angry. I mean, obviously, it's nice if we can resolve problems before we go to bed. And, you know, trying to kneel together in prayer can help with that. But sometimes the situation is so intense and the feelings are so raw that it's a little bit hypocritical to sit there and say that like, okay, I'm over it. Now let's go to bed. You know, that can be more of a repressing of our feelings rather than a very good resolution. So sometimes it's okay to take that break or even sleep on it and agree to approach the topic again when we are both calm again and can be kind and caring and respectful You know, I didn't mention this, but I should mention that safety is so incredibly important in marriage, and we don't talk about it nearly enough. The things that Gottman is mentioning here are parts of safety, but our partner needs to feel safe, and we need to feel safe. And if that's not happening, we should discuss it and make the adjustments necessary so that we feel emotionally, and certainly physically safe, emotionally safe, spiritually safe. The gospel won't be used as a club or used as if, you know, it's a trump card. I can quote scripture better than you, so I must be right. Or I can quote the prophets better than you. Or here's the conference track that proves that I'm right and you're wrong. That's spiritual abuse, brothers and sisters. That's not appropriate. So we want to keep things safe. So we are not trying to just always win or put down our partner or be disrespectful in any way. Okay, number seven, the last one, focus on the positives. Now, this is the one that I was so impressed with, his research. Gottman had a clinic, and probably still does, at the University of Washington, where he would observe couples talking to each other. And with their permission, of course, they would go into even an apartment and live there for a while, and they had their private spaces that were not recorded or video recorded, but the other parts of the public areas of the apartment for the couple were videoed and recorded so that Gottman could look at what was going on in their day-to-day interaction. And... Then he had this idea to record the positive energy or the negative energy of every statement or interaction, even body language, if if I remember right, was counted. So if somebody gave a nasty look to their partner or if their tone of voice was sarcastic or mean or rude or disrespectful, all of that counted as negative. So he made two columns and one had the positive interactions or statements, including tone, including facial expression, all of that body language. And the other column had all the negative. And he just made hash marks every time the couple interacted with each other. And he didn't do a separate one for the husbands or wives, as far as I know. That might have been a different test. But right now, it was just how much negative energy is there in their interactions. And at the end of the designated period, which started out being an hour, and then he reduced to 15 minutes just for the heck of it. And it's pretty fascinating because at the end of that hour, Gottman could predict with like 96% accuracy whether or not the couple would stay married or get divorced. That is extraordinary. 
I mean, no research produces that kind of result. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff. His did. 96% accuracy after an hour of listening to this couple talk to each other whether or not they were going to stay married or get divorced. And just for the heck of it, he whittled that down to 15 minutes and his accuracy only dropped to 90%. So what was he finding? Well, there had to be at least five times as many positive statements to and about each other and their relationship as negative ones. Now, it has to be sincere and organic. It can't be like, here, let me say nice five nice things to you and then tell you what I really think. It had to be genuine flow of the conversations and interactions that were more positive than negative. At least five to one. And that was not equated necessarily with marital happiness, but with the survival of the marriage. It has been suggested by Gottman and others that in order to have happiness in marriage, that ratio needs to be at least 15 or 20 to 1. 15 to 20 more positive interactions than negative ones for the marriage to be really happy. But for it to succeed, for it to just continue, needs to be at least 5 to 1. Okay, I've gone long again today, but I hope that this is helpful Our Heavenly Father loves us. He has ordained marriage to bring us joy. It's a lot of work to figure out how to change sufficiently and become that better version of ourselves so that we can experience that. It is what God invites us to have. Whether or not our partner on this earth or whether or not we have a partner on this earth does not determine whether or not we can qualify. If we work to keep our covenants, if we work to let refining experiences actually refine us, we can have this wonderful gift that God promises to his faithful disciples that hunger and thirst after it and after righteousness and to the end. Let's do it, brothers and sisters. This is a key component to choosing glory and building Zion. We can do it. Thanks as ever to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care.